All right, folks, here we go with another edition of the Russell Smith Podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Really excited about this episode featuring Knoxville Mayor Madeline Rojero. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to be able to branch out and talk to some people who wouldn't normally appear on my sports radio call-in show, and I've been trying to set up this interview since the very beginning when I started the podcast. A quick background story here. We recorded this on August 1st, 2019 on a Thursday, and all this week I have been battling some bronchitis or hay fever or something, and uh, it's been just wreaking havoc on my vocal cords. So I actually woke up the day before this interview was scheduled. It had been scheduled like two months in advance, and I woke up the day before with my voice almost completely gone. And I thought, oh no, I'm going to have to cancel or, or at least postpone uh, this interview with the mayor. But um, found a way to fight through it with the help of uh, a lot of over-the-counter drugs and green tea. And uh, we got it done. It was a great talk. And Mayor O'Hara, a really interesting story as far as how she ended up in Knoxville. And she has certainly presided over a very interesting time in our city's history. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Knoxville Mayor Madeline Rojero. All right, we're here with Mayor Madeline Rojero, the first female mayor of Knoxville. And I should say we're recording this the 1st of August, 2019. So you've got a little over four months left in office. I go out on December 21st. That's when the next mayor will be sworn in. Okay. Are you ready to be done with it or would you like to run for another four-year term if you could well i always say if you do it right eight years is enough (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, we've put our heart and soul into this and and i have loved my job it's really the i've had a lot of different jobs in my life and i have to say that this is the best i've ever had and uh i but i'll be ready i'll be ready to hand it over and and I, i think it's good for a city i think it's good for government to have um change you know, for, for new leadership to come in uh, and to have a fresh perspective. So um, I hope to leave the city. I believe we'll leave the city in very good hands in a number of ways. But um, I, I think it's, it's good overall for, for new blood to be in this, in this office here. And so um, I will hand the reins over on uh, December 21st. Great. Well, I'm interested to hear about your time in office and as well as your future plans, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got here. You were born in Jacksonville, Florida? That's right. Both both of my parents were born and raised in Jacksonville. They were, uh, my mom I was first and second generation, depending on which parents you're talking about. Uh, and my dad's folks had been over as, um, they came as indentured servants to Florida back in 1768. So the Rahara family's been in Florida and the Jacksonville and St. Augustine area for a really long time. Wow. And what was childhood like down there? Was that? Uh... Well, I was born in Jacksonville. And when I was six years old or five, I guess, we moved to uh, just about 20 miles south of Cocoa Beach, just south of, of Cape Canaveral. Yeah. And so I was there from 58 to 66. During the space race and everything. Wow. So my dad was a plumber. So he moved down there to build the houses for, to plumb the houses that were being built. It was a boom town in those days. It was a, yeah, it was a boom town, that whole area. And, uh, scientists and engineers and astronauts and, you know, folks were moving into the area. So. Did you get We've, to see the launches and, and things like that? Yeah. So one of my favorite stories is we'd be sitting at the 
dinner table, and all of a sudden we'd hear a kid <laughs> on his bike riding down the street yelling, missile, missile. Yeah. So everybody in the neighborhood would drop what they were doing. You'd run out. So everybody's in their front yards. And we and so we would be looking north, and you could see the missile coming down the coastline. And you could see it as it would blow the different stages, you know, over the over the ocean. Werner von Braun and his, his team <laughs> testing their new gadgets and toys, yeah. right? Yes, it was pretty amazing. And then I had some girlfriends whose dads worked at the Cape. So by the time we had the, you know, we've just been celebrating the 50 years since yeah. the walking on the moon, right? Uh, we had already moved away when I was um, going into high school. We moved up to Dayton, Ohio. And though, so that was in 66. So three years later, when they uh, were walking on the moon, I came back down and actually was at, with my friends uh, whose parents worked at Cape, I think it was Cape Kennedy at the time, it was uh -huh. Cape Canaveral again. They, um, we had passes to watch the, that moon shot, to see that, that missile go up with the, with the astronauts. So The Apollo 11? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I still have my certificate of being on the site that day uh, and being able to watch that. So I, I spent a few days down there and, of course, watched it on TV. And so you saw the rocket go up. You're no, no uh, lunar landing denier or anything. You no, saw it with I, your own eyes. I saw it with my own <laughs> eyes, yeah. I'm not a denier. <laughs> Very good. Well, it, Yeah, but that was life growing up among, around the space program and growing up in central Florida on the coast. We were basically right on A1A. And uh, my dad was in, was a hunter, and uh, uh, and he fished, and he had race cars. So he went to the, the super stock and really? races. So every Friday night for a while there, every Friday night we'd drive his sportsman uh, race car to the Orlando Speedway, and then on Saturday night night he'd take his uh, super stock car to the O'Galley Speedway. O'Galley is actually the city where we lived. So my dad, so we, my dad's a real outdoorsman. Uh, and so, did he race them? Did he raced the cars. Well, no, he had three kids, a business, and uh, by then, and a mortgage, so on a wife. So, I think the deal he must have worked out with his with my mother is that uh, he would have somebody else actually race them, but he worked on the cars and our garage. I would sit out there with him. And so it was too tools. dangerous to race the cars. Yeah, yeah, she didn't want him <laughs> to actually race it. She, you know, she, but. Um, so, so uh, I, and one thing I always remember, so we were in Florida. I never knew, I didn't know I'd be, live in Tennessee in the future. But my dad told me that the best stock car race drivers were the, were the guys from Tennessee and Virginia. Really? Yeah, eastern Tennessee, Virginia. Because, because of the, uh, the moonshining business? Well, and, the mountains, and they knew how to, yeah. to you know, um, how to hug the curves you know, well, let's say that's around. how that sport got started was, uh, you know, <laughs> guys in the hills <laughs> souping up the cars to outrun yeah. the law yeah. and Copperhead Road. Yeah. So I remember dad saying that. So so a, a young kid named Junior was uh, the driver. for Great our, racing name. Yeah, it is. So anyway, so those were I had a great uh, life growing up, a brother and a sister, ton of cousins and a bunch of friends and and a lot of uh, outdoor you know, my dad just a lot of activities uh -huh. that we did as a family yeah and uh you you mentioned you you moved to ohio you did you move around a lot growing up or? well my so my dad's business actually the space program ironically towards the mid 60s mid to late 60s really started cutting back and some of it was moved to houston 
and uh, so uh, the economy really tanked, even though three years later they were had the moonshot. Um, so the economy tanked around there. So my dad uh, got a job in, up in Dayton, Ohio, where his brother lived, and so I had some cousins up there. So we ended up moving to Dayton, Ohio, and that's where I went to high school. And then I traveled quite a bit at, in college. I lived in Philadelphia, and then I ended up coming back to Ohio, and then I joined up with um, working on the boycott with the farm workers union, with Cesar Chavez uh-huh. and the farm workers, supporting farm workers in California. We're trying to get decent wages and working conditions, and there were literally hundreds of people who worked. Uh, you know, we got $5 a week plus room and board. It was like being a AmeriCorps worker or somebody. What did you do? What did, what, what did that entail? So we, uh, our job was to talk to churches and schools and unions and civic clubs to to explain what was happening to farm workers and and to ask for their support they were uh, what Cesar Chavez's goal was was to put financial pressure on the growers who were big multinational corporations in California it's not your little farmer like, like you might have around here but they make a lot of money and they paid farm workers very little and their living conditions were very poor they lived in labor camps and such. Mm-hmm. So as a result of what Cesar Chavez did, and he's recognized as a real leader now all throughout the country, uh, his, so he through this economic pressure and the, the pressure of churches and that National Farm Worker Ministry was big in, in working with farm workers, and there was just a lot of pressure put on the growers to then uh, start to pay better wages um, to stop spraying pesticides in the fields, which impacted their health, obviously, and to create better conditions. So, so I worked as a volu- as a volunteer yeah. because it was so little money, but it was full time. So I was an organizer, basically a, a boycott organizer, and and then we had uh, we did that in Ohio, and then went up to Chicago, and then ended up going to California and following the harvest and working in farm worker communities. Uh, with uh, the farm workers themselves. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, again, there were a lot of religious folks that were involved in it, um, union folks, community people. So you mentioned your, your father's uh, ancestors were came over as indentured servants. Do you think that that had some kind of impact on you psychologically, or maybe drew you to the plight of the migrant farm workers? Um, I don't know. Maybe we knew the story well, but I think it was really the... I went to Catholic high school in a suburb of Dayton, and the nuns and priests there, this was, I was in high school from 70 to 74, and the nuns and priests there really believed in the social gospel. You know, they really taught us uh, or challenged us to think about uh, justice and about uh, what was happening. You know, we were in a suburb and a uh, Catholic school uh, we we didn't have a lot of money actually because my dad had lost a lot when we moved up but we were certainly in a um, privileged place to be and we had good we had good teachers not just the nuns and priests but the lay teachers there too who really had a social conscious consciousness and uh, so I credit them with really raising my social and political consciousness and 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 my um, desire to 
make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you, you've already started college. You, you kind of put that on hold for a little bit to go to go do that. You right. took a, you took the circuitous route, as you said, to yeah. uh, finish your undergraduate work. Right. So when I graduated from high school in 1970, I went to Temple University, which was a wonderful experience because most of my, that was in Philadelphia, uh, actually in a, in a economically depressed part of Philadelphia, the school itself was uh, had a high percentage of Jewish kids who attended. So here I had gone to a Catholic high school, had grown up, or mainly it was either um, various denominations of Protestant or Catholic. And then, I, you know, I, I met a lot of kids who uh, were Jewish, and that was another great experience to broaden wow. my perspective yeah. of the world. And um, so I, I went there for a year and came back and went to Ohio State for a couple of years and then learned about the farm workers uh, and, and that they were recruiting people to work with them to try and do, as I said, to help help farm workers get, get better wages and working conditions. So I left college after my junior year and ended up working with the farm workers for about three, three or three and a half years. And, uh, and then uh, meanwhile, I got married to someone who was also a an organizer with the farm workers and uh, we ended up leaving uh, California in uh, August of 77 and my husband ended up getting a job with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union which was uh, organizing textile workers in the south particularly in North and South Carolina so we ended up in Greenville South Carolina and that's where Furman University is. Yeah. And so I applied, and Furman accepted all my various credits. <laughs> and that uh, must have been a, a hassle to get. It's not like today where you can just email the different colleges and get your transcripts. That must have been a, an ordeal. Yeah, I guess it was. But um, but they Furman, as you know, is mm-hmm. a really good school. An interesting Southern Baptist. Again, another <laughs> interesting uh, thing for this. Catholic girl, uh, it was went to a Jewish college and then uh, a Southern Baptist uh, commu- uh, college. But I graduated from there. It was a great, a great program, uh, and I graduated with a degree in political science. So you've uh, you, you've uh, had a lot of different experiences from Florida to Ohio to California, everywhere in between, and you end up in South Carolina. How did you get to Knoxville? So after, so we were in South Carolina for three years. My second child was born while we were there. Uh, my first was born up in Chicago, and so um, my husband again was transferred. My, that's my f- uh, former husband. He was transferred to uh, Knoxville uh, to work with Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers okay. Union. Here, uh, there were several contracts at the time. There were some textile companies still here. That uh, so he was a the district uh, manager for the union here. So that's what brought us here. And that was in 1980. So we came with uh, a three-year, uh, 18-month-old, and a four-and-a-half-year-old, and uh, moved to Knoxville. And I had always assumed that, that this would be one more stop, right? Because I had yeah. lived a bunch of different places. But uh, now, 39, almost 39 years later, we're still here, and uh, we made Knoxville our home. Raised our kids here. I'm now, now have our grandchildren are here. I, I remarried. We divorced three years after we moved here, but um, 18 years later, I remarried again, and 
So now I have my two grown kids Mm -hmm. and my husband has three grown kids. So we have five together and uh, we've got eight grandchildren. Wow. Not all are here, but uh, most of them are here. Big family. Yeah. Yeah. So what were Knoxville's home? What what was your attitude towards politics growing up? Was that something that you wanted to be involved in early, or is that something that your experience with uh, the uh, the farm workers kind yeah. of incubated? Or well, I think with uh, my parents weren't all that involved. I had uh, my mom got involved in one political campaign as we were growing up because she had a cousin's husband who was running okay. <laughs> for office, but I don't remember much you know being catholic when president kennedy was in office that was a big thing for us but um but as i said earlier i think it was really high school that raised my awareness on social and political issues and and then working with the farm workers obviously seeing uh working with people throughout the community and and becoming more aware of other issues i also grew up during the women's rights movement and and civil rights uh, movement as well. All of those things were happening around me. Sure. Right? And in high school, we got involved in several civil rights initiatives. Um, so uh, all of that together, I think, made me aware of the role that government has in in making in uh, ensuring equity and opportunity for for all people. So, but I never ran for office. I ended up uh, working for, uh, well, I, I um, after we moved here, I went back to work and uh, with my little kids and, and uh, ended up working from different nonprofits. Like one was a, non- a foundation that had a local office here. It was a foundation out of Washington, D.C. that had a, an Appalachian field office. And our job was to work with emerging nonprofits and help them that were they were addressing critical social or political issues. Okay. And to help them raise the money they needed to be successful. Mm-hmm. And um, and during that time, I also decided to get my master's degree in city planning. And so I went to UT. They had a planning school at the time. So I was working in the nonprofit social change world, working on a city planning degree, and um, it's enough to and, and uh, young children. And that's, children that's and got divorced, a, yeah. and divorced through most of it. Yeah, so you've you've got a lot on your plate at this point. Yeah, yeah, but it was all working out and uh, very exciting work. I mean, I was excited to be doing all of it. Then in 1990. Uh, I, I was working for another nonprofit that was actually a support network for women coal miners, uh, which was headquartered here in Knoxville. It's another whole wonderful long story. Uh-huh. Really got to know coal miners throughout the country, and particularly women coal miners. Uh, and um, but then in 1990, a uh, couple of local guys, people that I knew that were involved in the Democratic Party, they called and encouraged me to run for county commission. I was living in North Knoxville. My kids were in the North Knoxville schools, Bell Morris, Whittle Springs Middle School. Uh-huh. My son was about to enter, um, getting my math right here, the years. Yeah, he was about to enter Fulton High School. And so uh, I 
looked into it. My first reaction was that I wasn't qualified to run for <laughs> commission. And, and they looked at it and they said, no, you know, look at what you've done. You've got a master's in planning. Uh, you've been actively engaged in the community. You really should consider it. So I started looking into it, talking to friends. They all encouraged me. Did you know what county commission did, well, what I it did, entailed? I did in that my kids were in the school system, and so county commission basically funds the schools. And a few years before, county, uh, the county commission had uh, attempted to put a mass burn incinerator in North Knoxville. This was before everybody recycled and and the Which is like burn garbage. It and, was like, okay. yeah, build something and you burn all your garbage. And so the people in North Knoxville resisted. Did not want that in their backyard, understandably. Did not understandably. want that on yeah. Baxter Avenue right there. And it also was such it was going to be built to a size where it would require us to find other garbage, you know, to make it economical. So anyway, so fortunately that was defeated. And But so that made us very aware of the role that county, even though I lived in a city in the city, we're part of the county. Uh-huh. So if you live in the city, you're also part of a commission okay. district. So we, I was very, very tuned into city council, but those experiences really helped us tune into county commission and the importance of us being actively involved. And there was a gentleman who had been our representative on commission for 24 or so years. And that, and that's who he, they encouraged me to run against. He was a Republican. I ran on the Democratic ticket, and uh, so you know, so I decided to run, and we put together a very grassroots campaign. I think organizing for farm workers and on the boycott really helped me yeah. <laughs> know how to reach out to people. And um, so we had a little. I, f- I found a little office, campaign office on Broadway. And it's now been upgraded to a tattoo parlor. It was, <laughs> it was really uh, bad shape, but it served the purpose. And we had a lot of volunteers. It was right there on Broadway uh, in, um, near 4th and Gill, uh, near that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And to our surprise, uh, I won. <laughs> we didn't expect it. And the <laughs> newspaper didn't endorse me at the time that the New Sentinel did it, the Knoxville Journal did endorse me, though they didn't think I was going to win um, because everybody thought this, um, you know, my opponent had been around for so long. It's pretty entrenched. It was entrenched. But what I found by knocking on doors, making phone calls, being at every event, and just having had been at events for years because of my kids and my interest in my community, uh, I found that he had been in there so long that he had lost touch. He wasn't going to all the events. In fact, I rarely saw him out when I was campaigning. And uh, he also uh, was kind of a, you know, a, um, had an old-timer's perspective because the few times I would see him, he would be very gracious, but he would, um, you know, introduce me. And he would say, so if you were there, he would have said, Russell, have, have you met my opponent, Madeline? Isn't she pretty? <laughs> and... And so a little bit condescending or, yeah, but I, but I, but I didn't take it. I understood he was, you know, he was the old timer. That's kind of way he looked at it. But I also thought he's underestimating me. Yeah. So I would just smile and and thought I would just be as pretty as possible. Cause if he thought I was this pretty little girl, then he would not realize it would not work as hard against me. So was it just a matter of outworking and knocking on more doors than he did? We knocked on more doors. We were, act, you know, it was a matter of me having been actively engaged in the community, and he had kind of lost touch. 
knocking on doors, having lots of volunteers. All, and they say you always run scared, you know. Um, and he just didn't realize that I was a threat. And so we outworked him. And we ended up winning by a landslide. And uh, we were surprised as anybody. But um, because it was, you know, my first race. So that was so, the relationship cordial after oh yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. He was always a general. We always had a cordial Good. relationship. And I never attacked his record. You know, I, I, you know, I raised, I think, the uh, a couple of issues, but was never negative. It was all I just promoted myself on what I thought I could bring. Uh, and he never said anything negative uh, publicly. So. Uh, so it was a very cordial race. Different different age, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, there were some pretty non-cordial campaigns okay. at the time, but that just wasn't my style, nor was it his. And uh, so, uh, so I so I won and uh, served in my first term of uh, four years, and then ran for re-election. I was actually the first Democratic woman elected to county commission. I found that out after I won. Uh, three other women of the nineteen commissioners three others were women those are the first and only women who had ever served throughout the time on knox of knox county government uh so i was the fourth woman to ever serve and um so i served for four years and then ran for re-election and this time the republican party did not take me for granted (laughs) and uh the uh then had a very aggressive opponent he worked very hard and actually uh had a lot of negative mailings and such about me but um we just promoted again our our positive record of what 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 i'd accomplished in four years and what and, is that like getting the the neg the first dose of negative campaigning yeah. against you yeah. after the first one was very much not that way well uh and this was before the internet right i mean we had i didn't even use a computer in 1990 i don't think we used computers to the 94 campaign and we didn't have Facebook and social sure. media and all that stuff in 94. We weren't using that. So if there was negative uh, media, if there was neg- negativity about you, it was either in the daily papers or the TV, right? Or it would be, and that would have to come through journalists, basically, right? Or it would be in mailings. So um, it, you didn't have all the blogs and everything else that 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 you see today. So today you really have to have thick skin. <laughs> yeah. But um, I had gotten used to for f- serving four years that there are people that will criticize you. That's just what happens. You have to get thick skin and, and know that's going to happen. Um, but it was still surprising um, to see the negative slant on stuff. But again, I ran on my record. And when you're in office, you have a record and you don't make everybody happy, but you hope that that you do more things that make them pleased with your service than than not. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I won re-election. We had some very, really tough votes, tough issues that we had to deal with uh, during my first term, like desegregation of our schools. It was very controversial. Mm. I supported it, you know, mm-hmm. we, it was the right thing to do. Um, but um but I won and served again for four years. Meanwhile, I think in 96, there was a referendum to and to have term limits for commission, for county offices and for city offices. And those, those passed. So in 98, um, 
uh, technically I should have been term limited, but they those weren't being enforced yet. But I chose to term limit myself. Okay. Because it had passed. I thought it was the right thing to do. So I chose not to run for re-election in 98. I then sat out for three years and uh, continued. I always worked. Meanwhile, these are part-time jobs. Sure. And did you have, uh, did you know the mayor at that time? Would, what were your attitude towards this office? Was, was that something that um, you thought, yeah. oh, I might like to try for that someday? Well, even then, I, I really wasn't thinking of, of that. I, as a commissioner for a predominantly city, for a commission district that was totally within the city, mm -hmm. I had a lot of the issues that constituents would call me about had to do with city issues, road problems, trash pickup, sidewalks, things like that. So I had already established a relationship that I could call uh, the, um, the mayor's office. Uh, that was Victor Ash was the mayor at the time uh, for uh, probably all of that. Yes, all of that time he was the mayor. So I knew who was the head of different departments. And so I would call them if there was a problem uh, so that they could address that for you know, that city constituent. Uh, but even then, I didn't have my sights. Actually, what I started thinking about was running for county executive, which was what we used to call the county mayor. It was called the, the oh, okay. county executive. It's Glenn and, Jacobs' job now. Right, okay. exactly. And so at that, when I was on commission, the uh, county executive was Dwight Kessel. And I parked then, in his garage today. It's very nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. The Dwight Kessel <laughs> yes. garage, exactly. Uh, and then, um, I can't remember the timing on all of it, but Tommy Shumpert then became the county uh, executive. Uh, so in 2001, I, I guess Tommy was no longer running, but uh, I was going to run for county executive. And then I uh, ended up getting remarried, had new... Um, stepkids and just all of the challenge of blending a family together and all I, I decided sure. that I really wanted to put my focus on that to make that work rather than to engage in a big county-wide campaign so I decided not to run that I would um, you know you're always balancing your professional life your personal life and your political life and so I just decided that that wasn't the right time for us for me and for us as a family so that was in 01, 2001. In 2003, uh, Mayor Ash was term limited. And so uh, I decided to run for city mayor because really so much of my activism in the community was city focused and I had a city planning degree. So uh, that's when I decided to run for city mayor. That, that had to have been a, a major uh challenge and I know that you came very close to it was right. uh Governor Haslam that's right eventually won that race but um well first of all something that that I found interesting uh what is that the mayoral race is a nonpartisan race mm -hmm. how, how does that work what does that mean so you don't run on a party ticket mm -hmm. so in, with the county there is a you go for the primary and you choose are you going to vote in the democratic primary or the republican primary and then uh and then the democrat the and republican face off they the, face off mm -hmm. right so in the city without it being nonpartisan, then what happens is everybody's in the primary together 
and then the top two regards you don't declare regardless party. of party yeah okay you're not some people say who they are and most people know like i ran people knew i was a i'm a democrat and they knew bill was a is a republican but the top two whoever they are it could be two republicans two democrats or one of each the top two move on to the general election unless in the mayor's race if you get more than 50 percent in the primary then you're automatically declared you just win you win okay. you don't have to go to the november race it's not like that for council how was that race different obviously the the job is is bigger than than county commission uh there's there's a lot at stake there uh governor haslam the the family of uh, long history and local politics and in the city and everything there it was an uphill battle obviously it was and uh, actually uh, some of the uh, some of his family members were on the board of directors that I had just resigned from in order to run so I knew the family Bill and I are in the same leadership Knoxville the leadership Knoxville class class of 92 best class ever <laughs> uh, and uh, so yeah so I didn't so I knew Bill some uh, I didn't know him really well but I knew him from Leadership Knoxville, and the family had been very actively engaged and, and very generous in our community as philanthropists. So, so it was very much. A, uh, so he was obviously the the front runner from the very beginning. He was able to raise four times the amount of money that I had raised, and uh, but yet we ended up again running a very grassroots campaign. Had a lot of volunteers, and. Um, Unfortunately, he did the same thing. He did just sit back, assuming that his family name and his money would win. He was out there knocking on doors as well. So he, he did a grassroots campaign, too. So in the end, uh, he won, uh, but was only by six percentage points. And uh, and so we kind of declared victory. We thought we had done really well, considering. And um, But he won, and fair and square. And I immediately threw my support to him. Uh, the um, it was funny. I, after after I, I lost and he won, you know, they reached out to me. He asked me to serve on some committees and such, and I would end up talking to them every every now and then. They'd call me, and I was that first year. I took some time off after I had lost the race, <laughs> and uh, I can remember his assistant Janet saying. Every time I call you, you're in Costa Rica or you're here or there. She goes, sometimes I wonder who won this, who really won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I had time off and he didn't. He had to go from a, you know, a really uh, aggressive campaign to immediately jumping into it. And I had some time off. But so, uh, but he won in the primary. He got greater than 50%. So, um, so then uh, he began serving. So three years in. So meanwhile, I ended up um, uh, doing some uh, uh, consulting work. I actually did some work with uh, Capital One, uh, what's in your wallet? Oh, really? Group, you know, okay. Adam McLean, Virginia, for their philanthropy department. Some friend of mine from a previous job was the director there, so I was able to work with them on some nonprofit uh, community work and had several consulting contracts and about three years after that campaign i got a call from from mayor haslam asking if i would consider working uh, for him as his director of community development and that's my background planning community development and he had had uh uh 
some issues in the department and, and needed someone to come in. So after some discussion uh, with him and other members of his team, I decided to accept that uh, offer and came in and worked with him for four years. I mean, it wasn't at all awkward uh, bringing – can you move your microphone just a little bit up like that? Yeah, okay. thank you. Um, it wasn't at all awkward working for uh, or with the person that you ran against. No, not really because uh, we had – first of all, it was – for for a mayoral campaign, it was very cordial. <laughs> you know, there was always some issues, but overall uh, – we were very respectful to, to one another, and um, and like I said, we had worked together afterwards. I reached out to him; he reached out to me, and so we had a good working relationship. And I had a good relationship with many of the people on his staff. So it, that part wasn't hard, actually, uh, to make. I guess I don't have a big. If I had a bigger ego, maybe it would have yeah. been hard to come in and work for him, but. Um, I thought, and, he, and I thought he'd done it. He was doing a good job as as mayor, and I felt comfortable working with him. So, uh, so I accepted the job. And he was a pretty popular mayor too. Yeah, so, yeah. It, what? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing. He said when we were talking, we were. It was this was the year before his reelection, and we were kind of laughing about the fact that um, people would say that he hired me so I wouldn't run against him. And I said, well, if anybody says that, you tell them that if I thought I could beat you, I wouldn't take this job. I'd run against you. But Makes I thought sense. you'd been a good yeah. but I thought you'd been a good you know, you've been a good mayor. I think you're gonna easily win reelection. And uh I had no intention of, of running against him because I thought he had done well and, and he could win again. So I uh, it was a good. It was a great challenge. I asked him if he was mad at me, that's why he was offering me this job. Because <laughs> it, it was tough. I mean it was a coming in and uh, the department it was a great department, great people, but they had gone through some some challenges. So, so I came in and uh, was able to work well. Like I said, really great people, a uh, great department, and was able to to help uh, kind of put them in the right direction again. And so, uh, I did that for four years, and then in that fourth year. Bill decided his last year in office, he ran for governor and uh, was successful. And then, and so I resigned right about the time he became governor, or right before he was sworn in, I resigned and started my campaign for uh, mayor. And we had an interim mayor, uh, Councilman Dan mm -hmm. Brown was appointed because with our charter, if it's within, if the mayor resigns within 10 months of the election, then a member of council is appointed. Did you feel pretty good about your chances uh, with the next campaign, not only having come so close in 2003, 2004, but um, having worked in Mayor Haslam's administration, having seen him up close and what made him successful, did you feel like you were a better candidate in 2011 than you were in 2003? Oh, sure. I mean, I think I could have done a good job if I'd been elected in 2003, but certainly having uh, been front and center, seeing it involved in the every two weeks and with the mayor and the core team members meeting with the chamber and our, and, and our, and the development, our development partners, uh, knowing so how civil service works, knowing how the budget works. I came in, 
I came in actually knowing more than Bill would have known coming in. Either one of us would have known coming in in 2003, right? Because sure. neither one of us had been on the inside. So I had the the advantage of having been on the inside. And there was less of a, there's always a learning curve. And it's always a fire hose at you. But mine was probably a little less intense than it would have been in 03 for me. And what it probably was for Bill and any other new mayor coming in, having actually Sure. Been in the middle of it for those years. I knew the people, you know, I knew the structure. I came in being able to make some, I think, good decisions on, on uh, some limited uh, reorganizational decisions. So you run it in 2011 and you, and you win. You're the first female mayor in the history yeah, of the city. Yeah, there were four. So we, there were five of us who ran. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I was in the primary where you can win outright if you win more than 50%. I was. Like 20-some votes short out of all the votes cast of winning outright. (laughs) So we had to stay energized and and, uh, excited and keep the the team and the supporters together. And and for another six weeks, um, the number two person and I ran, and uh, then I was able to win in November. What does it mean to you to be the first female mayor of Knoxville? Well, it's... uh, it's an honor, obviously, it's, and it's a big responsibility because people's eyes are on, on you. When I ran in 03, there were still questions. Some people, some people would say, can a woman do this job back in 03? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for rolling your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. And so, and there were talks about, and Bill was, Bill always treated me as an equal, you know, so that wasn't a problem, but there would be people, um, saying i would hear this uh one of my friends is one of my supporters uh ran a beauty salon and he said that there were always debates should i should the gray in my hair come out should i dye my hair what kind of a hairstyle should i have did i have too much makeup not enough makeup all all questions i'm sure haslam got as well right? yeah right (laughs) nobody asked him uh and uh what should i wear at one point we were joking that we'd put a like a paper doll type of thing because um, by now we had websites, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, dress dress the candidate. You know what what <laughs> should I be wearing and all. That's funny. So uh, so those were kinds of issues in '03, but by 2011, that I had proven that Knoxville was pretty close to being ready to vote for a mayor, right? Cause yeah. We came so close, so that was never an issue. And when I first started running, there were actually two women early on, uh, Marilyn Roddy, who was a councilwoman at the time she had thrown her name in and after the first debate where there were two men and two women that was early before all the final official um petitioning you know for to to figure out who officially would be on the ballot okay it was a forum where it was all about neighborhood issues and councilwoman roddy and and i as the former community development director we actually had the best answers because we were the most familiar. So we had people coming up and saying, okay, we know now it's going to be a woman, which one of you? <laughs> so that's just how times had changed. And uh, Councilwoman Roddy ended up pulling out, running for another seat. And then a few more uh, men came in. So there ended up being, being four men and me in the race. And um, yeah, so then the, the top man and I ended up uh, going on to the general. Your administration has a four-level platform, uh, strong, safe neighborhoods, 
living green, working green, an energized downtown, and job creation retention. Do you feel like I know we're we're jumping forward eight yeah. years here, but uh, we can have some we can look back now. Do you feel like you've accomplished what you had hoped to in those areas? I think we have advanced every one of those. I wouldn't say we've accomplished everything we've wanted, but we have definitely advanced in every one of those areas. Um, we have through a community development department and our our um, our uh, office of neighborhoods have focused a lot on strong, safe neighborhoods, on addressing blight, on uh, creating affordable housing, on helping those uh, who need help with uh, the housing that they need. Um, sidewalks, our police protection, our fire department, all of that is most of our city services go into helping uh, make neighborhoods stronger. So we have more organized neighborhoods who are coming together to do what they can themselves to make their neighborhood stronger, to watch out for one another, and they create a unified voice so government can better respond to the needs in the neighborhood. So I, th I think we've advanced that um, significantly. Um, the, the greener, more sustainable Knoxville, our, we set goals, actually under Bill Haslam, we set goals to decrease our greenhouse gas emissions 20% by the year 2020 from our, I think it's from our 05 levels. Uh, this year, a year ahead of time, when we complete our LED streetlight conversion, that along with all the other things we have done to create more energy efficient government buildings to increase public transit and um, decrease um, we all still have our cars and love our cars but decrease the need to always drive everywhere we have more bicycle lanes scooters there's all mm -hmm. kinds of opportunities now um, so with all the different efforts of promotion on solar energy that we've had but uh, we will exceed the goals that were set in, in 08 we will exceed the goals this year uh, which was to reduce by 20, you know, 20% by next year. So we're going to exceed those goals with the completion of the LED streetlights. So we've done a lot. We're also have been involved nationally, statewide and nationally, on the issue of sustainability uh, with other mayors. Um, we oh, expanded our recycling program to single single stream. So we've done a lot of stuff to uh, along all the different uh, areas of sustainability. The uh, energized downtown, I mean, there could be no doubt about that. And I know that's that was uh, uh, had started before you became mayor, but it's definitely continued. And we were talking before we started here when when I was at UT in the in the late 90s, there was no real reason to come down to to Gay Street or any uh, Market Square that none of that was going on. And uh, just in the past 20 years or so, that has uh, really become a this is a great place to come hang out uh, for families and for young people and um, to the point where parking has become an issue now it's it's uh, it's the exact opposite there's almost too much reason to come down here <laughs> what is what is the future of downtown Knoxville from that regard yeah well there many of the old historic buildings have been renovated are or are about to be uh, there's still surface lots that in the future will have the potential in they're, they're privately owned so they'll have the potential for more development redevelopment um, 
I see that just continuing downtown is 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 thriving, as you said, and and one of the things that was the secret to success was having resident residences mm-hmm. here as well, so people live downtown. Uh, so there is a more twenty four seven type vibe here, um, and it's gotten so popular that there's developers who want to to appeal to and meet the demand of folks who want to live more in the urban core it's sort of jump they're jumping the railroad tracks now north if you look at depot with the the new regas square condos that are right next to the old regas restaurant and all along that area up happy holler you're seeing residential and mixed-use development the um on south here we're looking out across the river here as we speak the old Baptist hospital that was torn down. Yeah, it took a minute, uh, but it's looking better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it took a minute. Yeah. It did. and um, But now we've got, we went from basically no people working or living there to now there'll be something like 1,100. Wow. Uh, who are either between the student apartments on the west side of the bridge, of the Henley Bridge. And then between the two bridges, you have the market rate housing. And then right at, next to Gay Street, you've got the regal headquarters the u.s headquarters of regal cinemas that um that we were successful in getting that headquarters down here down the and we've got a river walk uh that will eventually and this is part of the south waterfront plan under that bill haslam uh came up with and he actually that's one of the things he appointed me to to be on the committee okay uh, to help with that and uh there was a wonderful public process about an 18 month public process to design a south waterfront plan knowing that this was one of our opportunities we for years we the city expanded by annexation going out to where the money was Mm -hmm. we're precluded from doing that now and even if we weren't our opportunity now is to fill in and to properly in a sustainable way uh, properly develop what's within our borders and this is one of our great opportunities along the south waterfront and so if you look severe avenue which you can kind of see from the distance here uh, we've got a streetscape project going on there and there's already restaurants and breweries and a veterinarian and uh, businesses that are coming to the area of course this is all helped by the urban wilderness yeah which we've invested a lot of city resources and there are um i was at the uh the state of the city address you gave a couple yes. of months ago that uh that place is ama- right at the end where the james, end white james white parkway, parkway just sort of stops abruptly there uh really neat outdoorsy bike trails uh area out there that is already pretty cool it's going to be much better i think yes and you know when i moved here back in 1980 you said you came here in 85 mm-hmm. is that right so if you wanted to see the wilderness, we went to the Smokies, right? Yeah. Or you went to the, or you went to Big South Fork. Now you can still do that. You know, there's a lot to offer there, but you don't have to go that far. And and if you don't mountain bike, you don't. You can still come to the urban wilderness. I walk the trails. You know, you, you, I don't mountain bike. I do walk the trails. So there are um, something like a hundred miles of trails through South Knoxville, some through city parks, some through pri- uh, easements on private land. And we've got the new Sutry Landing Park, mm-hmm. uh, which we will soon be opening the uh, kayak, the uh, boat launch, the kayak and canoe launch, and the uh, pavilion that will be there. 
but that's a wonderful asset uh, for the whole community. But then the other thing we've done is throughout my time uh, as mayor is to create more launch uh, locations so you can get on the river. So people are embracing the river again. They're embracing the wilderness that we have. Fort Dickerson uh, Park, we've made a lot of improvements to, created greater access. The two quarries in South Knoxville, mm-hmm. Fort Dickerson or the Augusta Quarry at Fort Dickerson and Meads Quarry, now people can swim and utilize them and, and they're very popular. So all of those types of changes uh, heading east we have done a lot of work to invest in neighborhoods in East Knoxville and in working with KCDC to revitalize the former Walter P. Taylor homes and Lee Williams Senior Housing and now the whole Five Points Complex. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And we've already made our first investment in this budget year to start with the revitalization of Austin Homes, which will be a uh, a, a new model of mixed of uh meeting of affordable housing but also more mixed income housing as well so so i think the um the downtown has really expanded and you're seeing a lot of folks who want to live closer to the core of the city we still have our single family neighborhoods we still have our suburban neighborhoods and uh, so what we want is to have options for everyone whether no matter where you want to live you want to live in cedar bluff area yeah. perfect we've there's great neighborhoods you want to live downtown or closer to the urban core you want to be on a near bus or, or near bike lanes you have those opportunities too so as a uh, sports radio guy guy i gotta ask you about the smokies return to knoxville <laughs> for for those of us that grew up going to ball games at bill meyer stadium i mean that was um uh, still a bitter pill to swallow seeing them them leave and and the ballpark in Sevierville, Sevierville is terrific but uh, a lot of talk about the Smokies coming back to downtown Knoxville and just wanted to get uh, your thoughts on I know at the state of the city address you said you were going to kind of hand that off to the next mayor since there's a lot of work to be done with that and yeah. and the next administration needs to be have their say um, where, do, where do things stand with the new Smokies right, ballpark? Right. Well, I have to say, I also went to this. I love baseball. I love baseball and softball. I love to play softball myself. And my kids and I were and friends were always at the, at the stadium. So mm-hmm. we probably were there when you were there sure. watching those games. We hated for it to, to, um, to leave Knoxville. Uh, so I had really hoped, we had hoped, my team, we're all big baseball fans. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, we had hoped to be able to, uh, work the deal and, and, and all to be able to make that happen. However, they're just like we see with, we saw with the Tanova public safety complex, any big project like that, there's many hoops, the due diligence, you know, all the discussion you have to have in order to make something happen. And, um, I had to come to the realization that we, um, we wouldn't be able to seal the deal, uh, before I went out of office. So rather than have, the team and the community have to take this, you know, to have to hand it off to somebody else who then ended up having to implement it. I thought it was better to allow the next mayor to act, to, to make those decisions and the next council, because really all of it will be done on their, on their watch. So, um, but you but, feel confident it's, it's going to happen. Well, and- no, well, I, I'm not confident it's going to happen, but what, what, I mean, that's up to them. But I hope it happens. But what we have done is we've had the initial conversations with the team. Uh, 
they have, um, and so they're working on some schematics and some ideas, and they're looking at potential costs. So what I hope to have is a is kind of a package to share. You know, here are some ideas. We've done the research on other teams and how they work in Fort Wayne and how they work in Greenville, South Carolina. And our vision for it is it's not a, a stadium that is just used for the team. And it's a stadium that's used year-round. Hmm. It's a community asset. All kinds of activities are there. It becomes like another community park. Plus, it has these games. So um, that's why that's how why I think if it's that kind of an asset, then as a community, it would be worth our while to invest in it. The other thing that we have done is we have we have managed our finances really well. We have maintained the highest credit rating in the history of the city throughout my throughout my term, my seven and a half years. We have, um, you know. W- We've been able to manage the operations, you know, the, the, the operating budget. We've had a comfortable capital budget to be able to do the streets, the, the parks, the different things we've talked about. And we have maintained a very solid fund balance, which some people call the rainy day fund. Uh, and so with an excellent credit rating, being able to meet our needs and plan for the future through our operating and capital budget, and then having a strong fund balance, a savings account, we think that leaves the the next mayor some really good opportunities to put a deal together. And that was my goal. If I couldn't put the deal together myself, then I wanted to leave the city, I wanted to leave the mayor and next council the opportunity fiscally uh, to be able to make a deal. Government executives always talk about decision-making, the hardest parts of the job. What's the hardest decision you've made as mayor? I mean, there are a lot of hard decisions. Certainly, um, number one thing is you're running an organization with 1,600 people. And so, f- first of all, you're you're the CEO of a company in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so, making the, the best hiring decisions. And now s- many of our people are civil service. And so there is a process uh, and I don't choose all those employees that there's a process um, through each department, which is the way it should be. So it leaves out a lot of the politics, but I do have to make my appointments uh, of my um, department heads and, and uh, cabinet and such. So those are some, you know, that's, that's some tough decisions to make sure you're getting the right folks in. Uh, we had early on, we, one of the first things we did, which is very difficult, is to enact pension reform. I believe in a defined benefit pension plan for police and fire and our city employees. Um, the one that we inherited was uh, not sustainable. Um, and in the good years, it had been added on to. And so when you have some bad years, like we had had before I became mayor. We were just coming out of the recession mm-hmm. when, when I became mayor. Uh, when it's bad years, you can't afford it. So working with our employee representatives, with our employee groups uh, and council, we uh, reformed the pension plan. We still have it, but we made some changes so that uh, we so that we were more comfortable that it could be sustained into the future. Another thing that we had to do, which has been very controversial, but a, a really good process was recode Knoxville. 
uh, which was the rewriting of our zoning ordinance to modernize it to a lot a lot of these the really cool development that's happening now it's not easy for the developers to do that there are a lot of variances you know you have to jump through a lot of extra hurdles this is the way we want our community to grow we need to make it easier we need more affordable housing we need more options more people are working from home we used to have very strict home occupation rules that's one thing if if the you know the old way now a lot of it's done on computers so so we changed the laws uh, or we are in the process of changing the zoning ordinance to address today's needs and to be able to grow as a community the way we want to zoning is a very contentious issue on on its best day (laughs) (laughs) and when you add again the all the social media everybody has a voice on the internet now and the loudest ones are amplified sometimes exactly and like i said at our press conference the other day this is a contentious issue there's been a lot of give and take there's a lot of compromise and that's what all the different drafts have been about that compromise and then the four long council meetings that we have had to go word by word through that and people who are there and part of it and active and they are unhappy and i get that and i want them involved what what's um disappointing are the people who never come to a meeting never read the document uh don't pick up the phone to get clarification and they write column after column after column blog after blog after blog against against and and so much of it is inaccurate Hmm. to me that's such a disservice to the public if you if there's something and i know some of the candidates have been knocking on doors and people will say oh i'm worried about recode and they'll say well what specifically are you worried about it's going to raise my taxes. Well, no, it has nothing to do with your taxes. You know, and so once they start explaining, then people are like, oh, I didn't realize that. You know, I won't be able to use uh, my, there'll be no single family neighborhoods. No, we love our single family neighborhoods. You know, so once you explain uh, and counter all of the misinformation that's been put out there, then people relax, you know. <laughs> um, so those, so pension reform, we were joking the other day, I started my two terms started my eight years with pension reform very controversial we're ending it with recode very controversial but both of those were so critical to do and uh, I feel particularly this city council four of whom have been on for five years with me I mean seven seven and a half years with me who are term limited and the uh, five who most of them ran on supporting recode we all feel an obligation to get it done because we've been living it we've been working with the neighborhoods and the developers for all these years we know where the problems are and we know what needs to be fixed and so these are you know these are the tough um when you're in this role or a city council person there are so many different opinions and you have to lead not follow which means you have to explain you have to respond, and you have to have a lot of public process. It seems to me it's going to be a interesting transition leaving this job and um, all the time and, and effort and, and uh, the folks that you have to listen to, people, uh, uh, the debates that you have to settle and, and make the decisions on. When it ends, that's going to be uh, – you're smiling. <laughs> you look forward to that. <laughs> well, I'll, you know, I love – 
I don't love the fight. I uh-huh. love the strategy. I mean, I love saying, here's the problem. And that's the planner in me and the organizer in me, I guess. I love he- saying, here's the problem. What are the solutions and how do we get it done? And then thinking through and getting it done. It's, it's great to know the problems and to come up with solutions. The real key is getting it done. So I love that process of, of working through the problems, talking to the different individuals, trying to get the, you know, to the point where it's accepted and you get the votes on council. I mean, that's, that's part that kind of energizes me because you know in the end you're going to have something better. Um, so that part I will miss. Um, it's also when you're, I think I said this in the beginning, if, eight, you know, if you do it right, eight years is enough, you know, that, that it's time. Uh, and I'll appreciate some of the downtime. I'll appreciate that vacation I'm going on. Uh, and, uh, and I'll watch, you know, the next, uh, I'll watch the next administration. I won't be critiquing the next administration. I don't think that's professional way to do it I will be glad to advise and help and you know you know ease the transition we will ease the transition whoever wins we will ease the transition and and hand it off the best way but um it's you know it's a huge opportunity it's a huge job it's a huge opportunity to make a difference I do want to mention one more thing I know we may be running out of time one of the other things that we focused on was business development, entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. We formed back in, um, oh, now I forget the year, 13, I think, or so, uh, the, the Knoxville Entrepreneur Center, which is there on Market Square. Yeah. And we have several uh, entities the, uh, the, at Pellissippi, at the Chamber, at the University. A lot of folks are trying to help businesses develop. And the, the Entrepreneur Center was kind of that front door to get in and figure out all the resources in the community. They have done a phenomenal job of energizing uh, the entrepreneur community, accelerating a lot of businesses and connecting them in with the resources. Uh, we've also got to have a big effort to support the maker community, which are, um, could, you know, be anything from um, uh digital digital products to something that you knit right I mean it's a whole range of things artists but folks that make things that are creative Uh, we have a maker's uh, space in South Knoxville in the basement of the uh, of Spark which was the East Tennessee Technology Access Center Uh, there that's a it's exciting Uh, we've got a community you might want to check this out there's going to be a Maker Summit coming up and the annual Entrepreneurship Week. Okay. Uh, So there's a lot of folks who are in that. And and as we know, as you want to grow businesses, you want the big businesses that are here to expand. You want to get businesses to come in like Cirrus Aircraft who came in uh, down at the airport. But we know that some of the most successful businesses like Regal started with a local guy. You know, went to Fulton High School and grew a business here in Knoxville that has now expanded out. So we want to promote those entrepreneurs and those makers to create jobs and uh, wealth right here in our community. Well, Mayor O'Hara, I really appreciate your time, taking time to do this. Uh, one last thing, what's what's next for you? I know that the vacation obviously is uh, high on your list of things to do once you leave office, but 
what do you have any plans as far as uh, future public service or anything like that? I don't have any plans for future public service. I at this time I don't envision that. Never say never, but um, at this time I don't see it. But who knows? Uh, what I do envision though is after taking some time off is staying active in Knoxville. Uh, I would like to do some. I will do some work, but not at the pace that we're doing it now. Okay. I feel like through my entire career from farm workers to through to all the nonprofits and and uh, community development and then as mayor that I've learned a lot and I think I have some skills and knowledge I can share. So I've been in some conversations with some uh, groups that I have worked with as mayor who might need some help. So Great. we'll see, but I don't have any, I don't want to make any definite plans yet. I want to take some time off. Good. Well, uh, appreciate your time again and uh, congrats on eight years. It, does it seem like it's flown by or it crawled by? Or? It, it, no, it feels it's... like it has flown by. It really, and, and even these were kind of, we count the days because I, we still have a big to-do list, a big stack of, of stuff on my desk that we still want to accomplish. So it's time slipping away. Yeah. Excellent. Well, again, thanks a lot for sitting down. It was nice to hear your story. Thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. Knoxville Mayor Madeline Rohero on your Russell Smith podcast. Had a bunch of other things I wanted to talk to with her and just uh, ran out of time. She was kind enough to give me an entire hour of her busy schedule. So really appreciate her folks setting that up for me and, of course, her time. And uh, who knows, maybe we can get her on again when her time in office comes to an end in December of 2019. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can send me feedback via a voice message right now from wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in my show notes. And if you really love the podcast, you can throw a little something extra in the offering plate over at anchor.fm. All right, got some more exciting episodes planned, some more football-themed episodes as we move into the fall. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled for future editions of the podcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, triple underscore Smith, S-M-I-T-H, and uh, on Facebook as well. Until next time, this is Russell Smith signing off. Y'all be good.